0: In regards to the return of the Lord, and uh, so I hope that you will be blessed by it this morning, as we look at the Word of God. We're going to do a Bible study, as it were. We're going to look at several different passages of Scripture, and I hope that you'll follow along with me. But first of all, I would call your attention to you uh, to the book of Second Peter. So, if you have your Bibles, we're going to look at Second Peter, chapter three, and begin reading with verse ten. Now, I don't have time to comment on everything that's in these verses. Another reason I can't, because I don't know a whole lot. (laughs) I'm not sure I understand everything there is to understand about these verses, but uh, there are a couple of some things that I want us to look at, and then we'll look at some other verses of Scripture as well. But in 2 Peter chapter 3, beginning with verse number 10, verse number 10, and we'll read down through verse number 14. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse number 10 says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also, and the works that are therein, shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, notice what he says, Wherefore, beloved, he's talking to us, seeing that you look for such things, what are we to do? Be diligent that you may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. Now the Bible gives us many challenges and exhortations and words of instruction when it comes to guiding and directing a believer in his spiritual life, in connection with the second coming of Christ. Now there are several Bible passages that specifically focus upon what a believer's behavior and conduct should be like in view of the return of Christ. And Second Peter chapter 3 is one of those passages. Now we have to remember something. We have to remember that Peter was living in a day where there were many false teachers questioning, even denying the very idea of the return of the Lord, who were questioning and even denying the judgment of the world, questioning and even even denying the establishment of a glorious future kingdom. In this passage, Peter admonishes all believers to carefully remember the Lord's promise concerning His coming, and to be eagerly looking for His return, regardless of the doubts, regardless of the disbeliefs, and regardless of the lies that were being promoted and preached by the false prophets of that day. Peter was soundly convinced that Jesus Christ was coming again. He was firmly convinced that God's day of judgment would come upon this ungodly world. Peter was firmly convinced that Christ's kingdom would be established one glorious day. So in light of the truth concerning the Lord's second coming, Peter describes what the life of a believer should be like while living in the last days. And first and foremost... Peter says that the Christian life is to be characterized by personal holiness and inner peace. And he makes that statement in verse 11 and in verse number 14. But in this passage, I want you to see something. Peter used some key words, key phrases. In verse number 12, he used the phrase, looking for. Verse 13 and 14, he used the phrase, Look for. Look for. What does that mean? That means when you look it up the definition of these words that Peter used, it means to literally to wait for something with expectancy. To wait for something with a sense of eagerness. It describes an attitude of excitement and of enthusiasm. He also used a word that we don't normally use in our everyday language. And that's the word in verse number 12. He used the word hasting. Looking for and hasting. What does that mean? That means to desire something earnestly. To desire something sincerely. To desire something seriously. And so because he says we do not know the day or the hour of our Lord's return, Peter's emphasis was that we must constantly be looking. We must constantly be ready. Why? Because if we don't, I believe he was convinced that we will gradually develop a cold heart, a worldly attitude, an unfaithful life. And so Peter's point was that having such an expectant attitude would make a difference, he says, in our personal conduct. That's why he used the words that he did in verse 11. He used the word holy conversation. He used the word godliness. He used the phrase in verse 14, being without spot and blameless. What about holy conversation? That is a reference to our external actions and behavior while the word godliness refers to our internal hard attitude of worship and a fear of god so peter says what that our conduct should be characterized by peace by confidence by hope and peter's admonition i think simply put is this live godly separated dedicated lives for how long until Jesus comes. Until Jesus comes. So there are three passages, and there, I'm sure there are others. But there are three passages of instruction that we should want to examine that directly challenges us as to what a believer's conduct should be like in the light of Christ's return. So as I said, we're going to do a quick Bible study in the time remaining that we have this morning. So if you would, take your Bibles and go to the book of Luke chapter 21. In Luke chapter 21 and verse number 34. This is telling us something. What a believer's conduct should be like prior to the Lord's second coming. And that is, there needs to be precaution. Precaution. For Christ's return. You say, what do you mean by that, preacher? Luke 21, verse 34. Luke 21, verse 34. Now notice the words of Christ. He says this. My nose is running and my feet are smelling. I'm sorry. I just can't stop it. Verse 34, Jesus said this. And take heed to yourselves lest at any time your hearts be overcharged with surfeiting and drunkenness and cares of this life. And so, notice, that day come upon you unawares. Now, the setting of the context of this verse takes place as what is called the Lord's Olivet Discourse. Jesus had just left the temple area in Jerusalem. And he went out outside of the city to a place called the Mount of Olives. And when he got there, the Bible says he was asked a question by his disciples as to what would be the sign of the end of the world. Good question. And so beginning with verse number eight of Luke chapter 21, the Lord Jesus proceeded to answer that question. But then you come to verse 34. The Lord was wanting to do what? To admonish His disciples of not being called unprepared when it comes to the second coming. Why? Because there is a tendency for God's people to grow slack and careless in their spiritual walk and service unto the lord we oftentimes need to be challenged we need to be exhorted to take precaution about our character in connection with the return of christ we need to guard and protect we need to grow and progress forward in our spiritual living for the lord So as not to fall into sinful temptation. So as not to waste our lives. So as not to be totally unprepared for the Lord's return. But you notice in verse 34 it starts out with a precept. Notice the phrase there, take heed to yourselves. Take heed to yourselves. What does that mean? He's saying you need to give full undivided attention. That word there or that phrase there means to be be aware. It means to be on the lookout. It means you need to be cautious. You need to be careful about something. Now keep in mind, Christ gave this precept to His own disciples. And one writer said this, and I thought this was true. He said, this precept was not addressed... It was not addressed to the carnal-minded Pharisees. It wasn't addressed to the skeptical Sadducees. It was addressed to Peter, James, and John, and the whole company of the apostles, men who had given up everything for Christ's sake, men that had proved the reality of their faith by their loving obedience and by their steadfast devotion to their Master. And yet, even to them, our Lord says, take heed to yourselves. Now I believe the point of the writer here was to say this, that if Christ felt the need to give this precept to a group of dedicated men as his disciples, then how much more do we? need this precept today. This precept should remind us of the teaching that is found in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 10 in verse number 12 which says what? Wherefore take, let him that thinketh he standeth, take heed, take heed, lest he fall. Listen, it's easy to substitute confidence in ourselves for confidence in the Lord. And I believe believers who become self-confident In their spiritual walk, they will become less dependent on God's Word. Less dependent upon God's Spirit. And they will eventually end up becoming careless in their living. And as carelessness and lack of caution increases, what happens? We have the openness then to temptation increases. And resistance to sin decreases. So when we feel the most secure in ourselves, when we think that our spiritual life is the strongest, when we think that our doctrine is the soundest, when we think that our moral Morals are the purest. Beloved, that is when we should be on guard the most. That is when we need to be dependent upon the Lord the most. That is when, as Jesus says, we need to take heed to ourselves. Take heed to ourselves. Verse 34 reveals... Some particular things in conjunction with this precaution. Things which present for us some important challenges to deal with in light of Christ's second coming. First of all, the Lord reminds His people that the need for being cautious and careful is really a matter of the heart. Notice He says in this verse, He says, Take heed to yourselves, lest at any time your hearts be overcharged. Your hearts, be overcharged. Just as the saying goes, and you probably heard this, but the heart of the matter, is always the matter of the heart. And as we think about this, outwardly, yes, a person can go through all the motions of being spiritual and righteous and being pious and religious. But if his heart is not right with God, beloved, it's all vain. It's all worthless. Man's emphasis, you know what, has always been on the outward reformation. The God, the Lord God, looks upon the inward transformation. That was a lesson the old prophet Samuel had to learn, didn't he? When the Lord sent Samuel to go to the house of Jesse, and the Lord says one of the the sons of Jesse is going to be the next king of Israel. And what did Jesse do? He began to parade his boys in front of the prophet Samuel. And the first one that came by, Samuel says, this is the king. This has got to be the guy. He's ten foot tall. He's got muscles like brother Dean. He just can do all kinds of things. And he says, this is the guy and the lord says no not him and he goes through all the sons all the sons and it was like samuel was throwing up his arms, and said lord now what do you want me to do and then he said do you got any more sons and jesus said i got one more left he's out there keeping the sheep his name is david but you know what the lord told mr samuel He says, the Lord seeth not as man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance. But he says, the Lord looketh on the heart. Now one of the problems of the heart is that it can become, as Jesus said, overcharged. Now he's not talking about a credit card here. This phrase, overcharged. Interesting word. It means to be heavy. Or it means to be weighed down. And the idea here is to become overburdened. It talks about here carrying too big of a load. So in the context, the Lord is talking about our hearts Being so weighed down with the things of the world to the extent that it adversely affects our spiritual walk and service unto the Lord. And this idea of our hearts being weighed down by the wrong things. To me, that's similar to the exhortation that's found in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse number 1. The last part of that verse says, To let us lay aside every weight, and the sin which so easily beset us. Get us off track. But he says, let us run with patience the race that is set before us. The weight of sin in our lives is that which weighs us down. It diverts our attention. It saps our energy. It weakens our enthusiasm for the things of God. We cannot run the race of faith when we are carrying excess weight and so unconfessed sin. It's like a ball and chain that wraps itself around our feet and our legs to where we trip and we stumble, preventing us from moving Moving forward in our service unto the Lord. So the Lord mentions three things, doesn't he? That will lead to your heart being burdened down. He mentions surfeiting. You say, what in the world is that? Surfeiting. That is a word that means to give oneself over to the physical pleasures, to the appetites of the flesh. Then he mentions a second thing, drunkenness. Obviously, that would be one aspect of giving oneself over to the lust of the flesh. But I think drunkenness here also carries the idea of just losing control of your life. I mean, a drunk, he doesn't have control. When a person is drunk, he doesn't have control of his mind. He doesn't have control of his speech. He doesn't have control of his actions. I mean, he's just out there. No control. I think that's the idea of this word drunkenness. Then he talks about not only surfeiting and drunkenness, but then he says the cares of this life. Now this could be the big things. could be the small things. This could be, it's talking about here, the temporal matters that we allow to dominate and to control our lives. In the same book, in Luke chapter 8 and verse 14, Jesus had warned about being, He called it choked. He says being choked with the cares and with the riches and the pleasures of this life. And when you combine all three of these things, it describes a scene where people's minds are preoccupied with the tedious and the ordinary, the routine matters of everyday life to where they are not the least bit concerned or interested in the soon return of Christ. This, I believe, is a similar description of the people in Noah's day. In Noah's day before the flood came. What did Jesus say was going on in Noah's day? Matthew chapter 24, verse 38, He said, For as in the days that were before the flood, what were they doing? He says they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark. Now, is anything wrong with eating? I hope not, because that's what we're fixing to do here in a few minutes. There's nothing wrong with drinking. There's nothing wrong in getting married. But what Jesus is saying is what? He said, hey, that's all people think about. That's what they're focused upon. That's all they're living for. And they get so preoccupied. They get so distracted with these things of life that it weighs their hearts down. And they don't, they're not focused. They're not thinking about the return of Christ. So He says, don't become like that. So the purpose, I believe, in Jesus issuing this word of precaution was to promote an attitude of readiness for His coming. He says, so that... In Luke 21, 34, He says, so that day come upon you unawares Don't let it come upon you unawares. That means suddenly or unexpectedly. Jesus wanted His disciples to be ready to be prepared for His coming again. He wants His people to be ready to go out into eternity and to meet God. Beloved, if we live with an attitude of precaution in relation to Christ's return, then our lives, I think, will be lived in such a way that the Lord will be satisfied. The Lord will be magnified. He will be glorified. Now let's move on to the second thing found in the book of James chapter 5. If you have your Bibles, James chapter 5, verse 7 and 8. There's another thing. What a believer's conduct should be like prior to the Lord's second coming, is that there must be precaution for Christ's return. And number two, there must be patience for Christ's return. So, like the man said, Lord, give me patience and hurry up, please. James chapter 5. James chapter 5, verse 7 and 8. All these verses, beloved, all are related or connected in some way to the second coming of Christ. And as you look at James chapter 5 and verse 7, what does he start out with? He, he starts out right out the gate. doing Saying what? Be patient, therefore, brethren. How long? Unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth, and hath long patience for it until he received the early and latter rain. Be ye also patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord, he says, what? Draweth nigh. In those two verses, you see the word patience three times. Now in this passage, James refers to the believer's great hope, the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the realization That things won't always be as they are now. The realization that believers are headed for a better place. All of that provides great hope. Especially for those that were undergoing perplexing problems and severe persecution. James wanted to encourage his readers, what? To get their eyes off the problems. And get their eyes on the problem solver. To get their eyes off the problems and turn to the promise of christ's return they were to maintain a spirit of patience that means of endurance of steadfastness of faithfulness in the midst of their trials and tribulations until when until jesus comes again and the coming of the lord will involve yes the vindication of the right and the vexing of the wrong the coming of the lord promises peace and judgment and justice therefore the saint of god is to have patience he is to hold out until the lord comes because when He comes, guess what? All wrongs are all going to be made right. He's going to make all things right in this world. And the idea of patience here does not imply that we are to sit idly by and do nothing. Instead, what? Instead, it means we've got to keep on bearing the burdens. And we've got to keep on fighting the battles until the Lord returns. And that literally, that word patience, it means, you look it up, it means long-suffering. And James gives his readers an example of that virtue. What does he do? James points to the farmer who exercised much patience in his farming. Now, I didn't grow up on a farm. Some of you folks probably did. Or you know what it's about. But you know, the farmer must constantly, continuously wait for the crops to mature before he can harvest them. And sometimes that takes days, that takes weeks, that takes even months for that seed that's been planted to grow and to mature into a crop to be harvested. And it's the impatient farmer that will grow nothing and that will harvest nothing. But notice that James makes reference to verse 7. He talks about the precious fruit. The precious fruit. That is something that is esteemed to be very valuable, something of great price. And in terms of farming, it's not until the crop has matured that is of any value. Therefore, the farmer's got to do what? He's got to wait. He's got to wait. If he tries to pluck the fruit, if he tries to harvest the grain before it's ripe, he will not have a crop of any value. Likewise, what is James saying? The child of God must be patient. Patient in his trials so that they can work out the blessing that those trials are intended to work by God. And if we are always, and this is hard to say, but if we were always delivered from our trials, the very moment that they came upon us, they would do us little good. That is certainly easy to say, but it's oftentimes hard to experience. However, our trials will last for a season if they are able to produce the fruit of character in our lives. That's why Paul could write in Second Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 17. It's a verse of Scripture that sometimes is hard for me to accept. Because he says, for our light affliction. Every affliction that I've ever gone through, I never thought it was light. I thought it was heavy. But Paul says our light affliction, which is but for a moment. I always thought my problems are going to last forever. But Paul says it's going to be for a moment. And then he says, worketh for us. I always thought my problems were working against me. But Paul says they're working for us. A far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. This an impatient saint will be an unfruitful, non-productive saint. James talks about the farmer waiting upon and depending upon, he says, the early and latter rain. The farmer's patience can best be described as a confident expectancy. He realizes that this is all in God's hands. You know, the giving of rain is God's business. It's God's business, and the farmer must be patient. He has to wait for God in His perfect providence to send the rain. And we too, James is saying, we got to do the same. We sometimes want God to act immediately in the midst of our trials, but sometimes God responds with a delay, not because of a lack of love for us, but because in His perfect wisdom, He knows just exactly when it is the right time to intervene on our behalf God knows when it's the right time for the clouds to rain and he knows when it's the right time for his son to return and every time I talk to my mama she says oh deed, I wish God I wish Christ would come today I wish he would come today I said mama I do too it wouldn't hurt my feelings one bit if the Lord was to come back right now. Amen. But James says we've got to wait. We've got to be patient. We've got to be patient. I mean, just as a farmer waits patiently through the entire growing season for his crop, even so the believer must patiently wait for the return of the Lord. Patience means to do what? It means you've got to stay put. It means you've got to stand fast. When you're tempted to run away in the other direction, patience is that quality, that characteristic in a person that does not allow him to surrender to the circumstances or to give up under the trials. In order to reap a spiritual harvest of God's blessings upon our lives, verse eight declares that our hearts, our hearts, must be established and strengthened. And James used that word establish. That's a good word, a good Bible word. And it means to be fixed. It means to be firm. It means to be set like you're in concrete. If our lives are not deeply rooted in the Lord and in the truths of His Word and the promises of His Word, listen, we will not be able to bear fruit. We will not be able to endure suffering. And that word established means firm courage, an attitude of commitment to stay the course no matter how severe the trial. It's actually a word, it comes from a root word which means to cause to stand or to prop up. And James, I think, is urging those who were about to collapse... There were people that he was writing to that they were about to collapse under that weight of persecution. He says, hey, you need to prop yourselves up with the hope of the Savior's return. His statement was clear. What did he say? Nearly 2,000 years ago, he said, the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. I believe James believed that he was living in the day when Christ was going to come back. He lived for that. He looked for that. And it's the responsibility of all believers to be patient for His return. Third and last thing. 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. A believer's conduct, what it should be like prior to Christ's coming, it should be, there should be precaution for Christ's return. There should be patience for Christ's return. And yes, there should be preparation. Preparation for Christ's return. 1 John 2.28 is all about that. He says in 1 John 2.28, John says, And now little children, abide in Him, that when He shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before Him at His coming. Always felt like that was a fascinating verse. Would you be ashamed? Would you be embarrassed if Jesus came back today? Would you? In this passage, John writes about the need for God's people to be properly prepared for the coming of the Lord. Now he uses three key words that were to encourage the believer to be living in a constant state of preparedness up to the Lord's return. Those three words start with an A. He used the word abide. He used the word appear. And he used the word ashamed. First of all, he talks about the need for abiding. To abide. To be properly prepared for the return of Christ. He says we must abide in Christ. What in the world is he talking about? Well, John's not talking about our salvation. He is referring to, I believe, our daily walk and fellowship with Christ. How do we abide in Christ? by believing and trusting and obeying his word by seeking him in constant prayer by submitting to his perfect will for our lives abiding in Christ abiding in Christ means that he's the Lord of our life abiding in Christ and that means that he's Lord of our life not only in principle but also by practice abiding in Christ means serving him with fervent love unwavering devotion abiding in Christ means that true believers must continue to love and to obey the Scriptures, to submit to the leading of the Spirit of God in their lives, to remain fully committed to the truths of God's Word. Abide in Him. Now, just from what I can see, I'm afraid there's not many professing believers that are abiding in Christ these days. They're abiding... They're abiding, alright, but they're abiding in dens of iniquity. They are abiding in the room with their own crowd of people, but they're not abiding in Christ. And those who are truly abiding in Christ, those that are living and walking in fellowship in His will and in His Word, they are those who will be prepared to meet Him face to face at His return. The need for abiding. He talks about the blessing of assurance. John uses the word confidence. He says, when He shall appear, we may have confidence. Confidence in connection with Christ's return. This word carries the idea of fearless courage, boldness, assurance. In the two chapters later, in 1 1 John chapter 4 and verse 17. John uses this word, this same word again, but here it's translated as boldness. Boldness. That we may have boldness, he says, in the day of judgment. In other words, what is John saying? He's saying we're to live our lives in view of the Lord's return. That when we will one day understand, we're going to stand before God in His holy presence. And when John uses this word confidence, he is not talking about living with with a sense of pride in oneself. He's not referring to a a, a spirit of cocky arrogance or self-righteous conceit. No, no. Instead, this word is talking about an assurance. An assurance that is based upon, that is derived from a life that is being lived for the Lord. It is the condition of a daily walk and fellowship with Christ that actually does what? That looks forward to His coming and has the assurance that His return again will one that will be a blessing and joy. The coming of our Lord, beloved, is to be looked upon with confidence, with boldness, not with dread, not with anxiety. It is the spiritually prepared saint that looks forward to Christ's return. But then there's a third thing he mentions here in this passage. And he talks about the embarrassment of being ashamed. Being in a place or position of shame when the Lord's return is not a good situation to be in. Somebody once said that people will go to great lengths to avoid being shamed before men. Some may even deny the faith so as not to be embarrassed before the world. But being ashamed before the world is of no consequence or importance when compared to being ashamed before God. What John is talking about here is being ashamed of our conduct, being ashamed of our life, being ashamed of our service unto the Lord. So let me just wrap it all up here and come to a close. If we want to avoid being caught ashamed at Christ's coming, we've got to abide in Christ. Our devotion to Jesus Christ must be fervent and faithful. Our walk and our fellowship with Him must be consistent and real. Our service and our work for Christ must be steadfast and unwavering. For there is a day coming, beloved, when the trumpet will sound and we will go immediately into the presence of the Lord. And may it be that we will hear Him say, that these words will come from his lips when you stand before God and he says to you, well done, well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. Beloved, we need precaution. We need patience. We need preparation for Christ's return let us pray Father as we bow before you this morning Lord I pray that we would take to heart these verses of scripture that we've